The culinary industry has gone through a wave of reckonings in recent years, even before the COVID pandemic kicked restaurants in the teeth. Largely gone is the overt sexual harassment and kitchen abuse that was once as normalized as front-of-the-house side work. Even pay has improved as cooks have demanded quality-of-life considerations. What does the next wave of chefs think about the current culture and what the future holds? This is State of Plate. That's up next. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Welcome back to our third episode of State of Plate, the show where we're deep diving into Colorado Springs' food and drink scene with industry insiders. I'm your host, Matthew Schnipper, critic and food and drink editor at the Colorado Springs Indie. My guests this morning are chefs Hannah Couples, Ian Diedrichson, and Chantal Lucas. Hannah runs for chef's sake private culinary services. Ian operates a fine dining outfit named Ephemera, located upstairs at downtown's Quadi Food Hall, and Chantal's the chef and owner of Luchal's Soulful Seafood, a popular food truck that also has a physical location at Quadi downstairs. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's go around real quick and have each of you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Hannah, you're up first. I'm a private chef located here in Colorado Springs. I do a lot of uh, in-home tasting dinners, um, small boutique caterings, and then I actually focus a lot of my energy into meal prep for people with heavy dietary restrictions. Cool. Chantal? Hi, my name is Chantal Lucas. Um, I am not from Colorado. I'm from South Central California, U.S. Army veteran and the owner of Lou Shells. I graduated from Augusta Scoffier um, Culinary and, you know, here to make food and do fun stuff. Cool. Ian? I'm Ian Diedrichson. I'm a Springs area native, grew up in Manitou um, from a military family. Started washing dishes one day when I was in high school and uh, never left the kitchen since. Tell us a bit about Ephemera, though. Ephemera, we opened uh, almost two years ago, officially. Um, Before that, it was a series of uh, pop-up dinners, so uh, coming up on four and a half years of doing that. And what's the focus of Ephemera for guests? What kind of experience do you offer? When we started the uh, the pop-up dinners, it was always about uh, kind of an immersive, multi-sensory experience. My uh, wife, Jasmine, and our creative director, she would do this really awesome job of, of totally transforming spaces, uh, whether it be a friend's house or apartment or uh, a restaurant that was closed on a Sunday or whatever. And we would kind of build dinners around these themes and, and the environment that she would create and everything. So uh, we try to carry that into the restaurant a little bit. Um, we treat it like a basically like a an art gallery that has a bunch of tables in it. We once in a while do do some uh, dinners themed around that, and then otherwise uh, it's all um, tasting menu and uh, pairing focus. So try to have like a, an experience based dining environment. Chantal, tell us a little bit about. So Luchelle's is pretty much like a. Um we, I don't know how I like to describe it. I think we're still trying to put our flair on seafood um, as far as like it being more of a Southern American style uh, kind of ordeal. Mm-hmm. My goal for what we're doing is to pretty much put out a different culinary experience when it comes to Southern food and seafood. Um, you can make it fun. You can change it up. You can give it different flavors. Um, it's just about how you do it. And taking a lot of my skills that I've learned from, you know, being in Hawaii and being in Louisiana and, you know, all these different places that you kind of have like a seafood culture and bringing a seafood culture to Colorado. Because for me, when I got here, I didn't really see anything different. And I think being a soldier, I guess I can describe it as, you know, you've seen Applebee's, right? You see like all the corporations and stuff like that. But that's familiar corporate, but you don't see a lot of you know, small businesses doing something outside the box or doing something that we are used to. So if I'm getting stationed in North Carolina, I know I can get some good catfish or things like that. Um, But yeah, we just kind of bring in a new flair to seafood and, Mm -hmm. you know, sustainability too is like a big thing, you know. Is that your sourcing? Yes, exactly. Okay. And when I first talked to you a couple of years ago, I think you described it as Cala, Florida, because of your back. Are you still using that? Yeah, it's still a thing. I mean, because, you know, my husband is from St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm from South Central LA. Um, and being in California, 
um, in a hole for me. I was able to travel and eat. My mom was like a really big foodie. And from being able to go out and experience different flavors, different flavor profiles and, you know, seeing things in different lights and not just in this one box in one arena was really awesome. And being able to go in the back of the kitchens with the chefs and stuff like that, it kind of, you know, took my level of what food should be to like a different level. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then going out to St. Petersburg, Florida, seeing what they do there and tasting that freshness and things like that is like, yeah, we're in Colorado, but we can offer that same thing. Hannah, do you want to say anything else about your work in terms of your client base? When I left for, I started doing consulting contracts with restaurants because I started noticing that most people don't like doing admin work when they're a chef. And I take a lot of pride in that. So I was, you know, filling those shoes for a couple of different things. And then the pandemic hit. So obviously consulting is not really a realistic option. Um, Started doing uh, meal prep and private dinners kind of as a reaction because I had uh, regulars reaching out to me like, I know shit's wild right now, but can we just get a good meal type of thing? Mm -hmm. And then news like that kind of just spread like wildfire, ended up becoming a full-time job. Just to recap from our first episodes, in episode one, we set the stage and and set the premise of of looking at the culinary scene. We talked to a couple kids who grew up here, who've gone out to big cities, and who were giving us a, a viewpoint back in from where they are now. In episode two, we heard from a group of chefs who uh, started a, a chef's collaborative here 20 years ago, and we're calling them the old guard because hmm. we just wanted to hear what they had to say about what they see. And I wanted to couch today kind of as the new guard. How old are you, Ian? Uh, 28. 28. Anna? 27. 27. I'm 31. You're 31. So you are. You are the young new guard, symbolically, for this show. So, um, yeah, that's my premise, but we're still revisiting those core questions of this show. You know, what's going on in our scene? Uh, where are we now? Uh, where do we want to go? And how, how do we want to get there? You guys are the where do we want to go? I want to know what the, the new generation's thinking compared to those old guys. Let's kick off there. Where do you think we are today? I think that's a, a big piece. question. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is a good question. I guess for me, watching the culinary scene, okay, so like I got here in 2015, and there was like, you know, you ask people like, where's the food? What's around? And a lot of people didn't know. And we're talking, of course, soldiers that are new here and kind of don't know anything about Colorado, but you would feel that if there was a food scene that people would be like, oh my God, you go here, you go there, you go here, you go there. So we would go downtown, um, we would go party at Mansion, we would do the same, oh, you know, soldier feel and whatnot. Um, but when it came down to like, you know, late night eats, I think the only thing that was open at the time was uh, King Chef. And King hmm. Chef was like, Popping on a oh my god on a Friday Saturday um, and Two that's oh chef. my god. gosh it was crazy you know and it was a dope feel and that is that was good you know um, but when it came down to restaurant we want to sit down you know what's what's the what's the vibe there was no quote unquote vibe if that makes sense um, that we knew about so I think seeing that. And not seeing an activated like how it is now. Now I think we're moving in a in a new direction of fun food, bringing uh, culture to the scene because I don't think there was a lot of crazy culture here. So I think now the market is changing. I don't think that we're in the same um, market where as to before people were looking for that that culinary experience, like that real you know you don't know the name of this, you've never had it before type deal. I think there's a market for it, but I don't think that's Colorado Springs market. I think Colorado Springs is looking for fun. I think they're looking for more vibey, more trendy, more, it's kind of like getting with the times, Mm -hmm. um, I think. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's changed a lot from when I got here to where it is now. And we should tell the listeners too, I mean, you and Ian are both located in Kwadi, in the food hall. Yeah. So, and you're downstairs uh, next to Anju and near yeah. the bar. Ian's upstairs has that exclusive. So, Ephemera is sort of the, they go yeah, upstairs. The ivory the... tower. Is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, that's uh, part of what you're speaking about too, is just to cre- you guys created a scene. So, you, you've got a, a collaborative going on that's, that's, that's uh, bigger than just a standalone brick and mortar. I kind of wanted to bounce off of what you said, because I think, you know, around 2015, when you showed up, that was really the cusp of when things started changing aggressively, because I um, I moved up to Aspen in 2016, 2017, um, and I noticed a lot of things that were pretty similar to Colorado Springs, like, you know, asking about food up there, and I'd be like, oh, you know, like, what are the go-to restaurants? And someone would be like, oh, my God, this is the best sushi in the valley. And I'm like, is it or is it the only sushi in the valley? Oh, this is the best pizza. No, it's the only restaurant open past sunset. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
just because it's the only thing there does not necessarily make it good. And then moving back after a year or so when, when we started opening four, um, noticing all the changes that had happened in the blink of an eye where the town was like completely different. And then, I mean, over the last four years or so, I mean, like you used to ask people like where to eat and like, yeah, they had the standard answers and like people have always been excited about food, but didn't necessarily have a frame of reference for it. But now like you ask someone where they want to go and they like pull out their Rolodex of taco shops and stuff and like have like 20 answers about places that they love, places Mm -hmm. that they've been, places that they want to go back to, Mm -hmm. things that they're excited about. And I don't feel like that that was a conversation that was happening before. And I do think, yeah, I mean, there are certain restaurants that definitely, like, kind of made that kind of push forward with people and get people, have them be accessible to food and really kind of open up that conversation, but also, like, open up the opportunity for other places to come in and do things a little bit more dynamically than how we've seen it before. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, um, you know, you're talking about uh, military people coming in uh, and, and, you know, asking where's the good food, this, that, the other. And I just always remember, um, like, my dad working out uh, out at Shriver, so way out east. When I was a little kid, he would always take me to these these uh, like weird little spots out east or the southeast of town, and they're, you know like little Thai Thai restaurants or just like Korean restaurants, things like that. So like ethnic spots, for lack of a better word. Um, so I think there's always been like these food spots that the downtown money crowd isn't. They're not going to go to those parts of town, but. You know, you're there at, at one o'clock and the place is packed full of people in uniform coming off a of base for lunch or whatever. And uh, so that I think that's always been there, but people don't venture that way. Shout out Tong Tong. <laughs> <laughs> you're touching on the military aspect that we we briefly mentioned in episode one. We were talking about the sort of three parts of town, the, the Powers Corridor, the downtown, mm. the north and the east where all the growth is happening. But we also did mention we, we have this transient military community coming through with the bases and, and how that shapes our food scene. And, you know, some of those um, soldiers are just looking for comfort food because they, they're coming from other places and they want to find that taste of home. And so our, our southeast side, which has those international uh, cuisine shops is, is really catering to that, which is awesome. Yeah, it's where you're going to see a lot of the, the military members. But Chantal, since you're coming out of the military, do you have another perspective on how being a military town partly shapes our co- food scene culturally? It definitely does. I mean, I think I've seen it where it can make it and break it. Because um, mm. I think sometimes you have restaurants that might uh, push their agenda towards the military. And we do have to remember that it's a revolving door. So we can't base it all there. We do have to give a percentage of that, you know, to it. But we still have to try to um, ensure that we're doing what we have to do for the market. And again, that's the people that live here, that have been here, that are going to stay here and keep generating those dollars inside of those small businesses. So um, I think now. Now, for us, I think we're, I think we probably serve about 20 to 30 percent military here. Hmm. So I think looking at our numbers. um, So we do have a a decent presence for military um, soldiers. But again, I think it's also reaching out and trying to see like, okay, well, how can we get these people here? Because even like we look at downtown, soldiers come downtown. But a lot of soldiers still don't know about downtown. Hmm. And it's crazy because you would think that that's like, yo, this is. It's popping now, you know, like, why don't you know about this place? But I get some soldiers that come in and say, I've been here for a year and I didn't even know that this was a thing. And did you first court them? Because you were doing a mobile truck first, or you still have that, right? Yes, actually. Is it more at events and catering now? So it's actually renovated. It's been going through renovations since about April, and we are actually getting ready to unveil it uh, this weekend. This weekend, that's right. Our new concept or new model of the food truck is going to be more event-oriented caterings and things like that, as well as doing some of the rallies and stuff. Okay. So then you're going to keep a brick and mortar and a truck going? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you're going to yes. sleep when? <laughs> that's that's a good question. Okay. Yeah. I think I've been, that's, we, that's chef's all life. been talking about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Anything else to be said about military influence on the town? I found out a couple of years ago that military population is not counted in state population because it's transient and they're not necessarily like you're not going to count it in German population with a base over there. So when people say like, oh, you know, Colorado Springs is a small town, like we have half a million people, but there's there's 50 or 60,000 more people that aren't counted in that. Mm. And we forget to include that as a portion of the people that live here. Like that demographic is huge. And especially in the pockets in town where the bases are centrally located, that has a huge influence on what happens there. Mm-hmm. Like Air Force Academy up north, if you can't run a business that caters to people, you're not going to make it up there. 
mm-hmm. but it's the same thing. I mean, like not necessarily military, but like you look at businesses downtown, if you serve lunch downtown and can't serve the Palmer crowd, you're not going to make it mm-hmm. because that's a huge demographic of people that go there. Those are the people that are going to flood those businesses during those times. And that's going to be the majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think to a certain extent, like it does have to be catered to certain groups, but like, yeah, I think it's getting to the point where people are willing to move around a little bit more and explore things, which wasn't really a thing before. What else to say about food halls? What have you guys seen at Quadi in terms of, um, you know, that was, I think, our second food hall technically behind Ivy Wild after Ivy Wild opened several years ago. And, and at the time, we didn't really think of Ivy Wild as a f- food hall. We weren't calling it that. No. Um, I mean, you spent some time at Axe in the Oak down there. Mm-hmm. So you got to see the scene yeah. at that time. Yeah, then you've come up the street with Quadi. Now we have the well open. There's sort of varying opinions. You know, I've talked to some of the guys in the bigger cities, you know, Chicago, whatever. They've seen them come and, come and go or they think, yeah. oh, that's that's not going to work or we're behind the times. Was, we were doing those 10 years ago. Yeah. I don't know it's how the springs. springs yeah. <laughs> so what do you think? Is the springs embracing food halls? Do you think we're going to be a town that keeps them and keeps them uh, vibrant or are these going to be f- flash in the pan? I mean, I really hate using Denver as, as our big brother all the time. But I mean, it's there and it is what it is. And you have, of course, that, you know, the uh, Denver Central Market, uh, Stapleton, whatever, whatever Stapleton Airport turned into. And, um, oh, the Stanley Marketplace. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's all up there. And, and I feel like a lot of Denver's growth and development has been, um, you know, kind of color by numbers. Um, like, oh, there's just a big influx of relatively young people with money. So just what do they want? Put this there. And I think the Springs is much slower in that growth that we are, um, you know, we're a little bit more organic about it. In terms of Kawadi, a, a thing that I would hear a lot of people say when we first opened is like, oh, I feel like I'm in a different city, you know, and in a way that's cool. Like, okay, so we're kind of growing up, but then it's like, well, no, you don't want to be in a different city. Like, this is the Springs. This is, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the food hall concept is a great incubator for young talent, um, people with People with ideas that don't necessarily have the the connections or the the, the prowess to like get a, a brick and mortar going. So I I love the idea that food halls are popping up because it gives more independent people uh, more opportunities to uh, start their ideas. And then eventually, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, I think most of those people are going to have their own things going on. So you believe in the incubation power of them? Yeah, absolutely. And what do you see downstairs at Quadi compared to what Ian just said or? I think the same thing, because um, we get a lot of people that come up and they'll ask, you know, how can we do this and how can we do that? And I was thinking about doing this and thinking about doing that. And I'm like, you know, this kind of lets you know if your model works, because ultimately it's not just the fact that you're in there. If you can be, bring a crowd in there without bringing a crowd there, mm-hmm. you get what I'm saying, to to enjoy alcohol, say they didn't know anything and they just knew your name. That means that your model works. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that is a big part in a lot of small business minded business. You know, when you say you want to open up something, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. What do people want? It gives you a different uh, mindset. And I think for us, because we had already had a following before we were food truck model based, though, and to be able to see what our guests like as far as, you know, what Luchelle's work inside of a building. So we start off with a small building and we do this. And though it's a group effort, it's still a thing of, okay, I still have to make my business work for me. I Mm -hmm. can't depend on what they do upstairs or what the person next to me does. It's really more about what does my business model say? And if it works, then you know that you have something that you can run with. On a given night, do people show up as if they're at the you know, like I'm at the mall in the 80s. There's like Orange Julius and Little Caesars, and I'm, I'm like a kid, and I get to pick whatever. Some people just go in, and they're like going to see what they're in the mood for, and they didn't come in with an intention. Mm-hmm. But then there's some that come because they know they, they're they going to find you, and they're in the mood for catfish or shrimp and grits or something. Mm-hmm. Or they want the tasting menu, and they're like, we're going to do, what is it? You go to seven course at $69 still for your tasting? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So like they're going to do a really nice fine dining meal, experimental, fun upstairs. So do you hear people sometimes saying like, oh, I came in. I was actually just going to go grab a, a beer next door at Pikes Peak Brewing, but I walked through that portal. I saw you guys, and, and here I am. And then they actually do the tasting menu. <laughs> or... um, sometimes, yeah. Uh, surprisingly enough, cause, I mean, you would think that what we do is, you know, somebody's going to come in there with intention. And once in a while, yeah, somebody's happens upon it. But, I mean, you also need a crowd of people that have expendable uh, income. We try to be as, as affordable as possible given what we do, but, you know, it's still not cheap. And, like, your price point downstairs is, what, like, these are 
12 to $15 entrees or something like that? Or? We've actually, no, we are actually at about 15 plus, 23, 15, yeah. 25. So, inflation is here. <laughs> I mean, and that's also another thing, too, for us because we're seafood. And so, again, given the stereotype on, you know, southern seafood, a lot of people expect it to be cheap. And seafood <laughs> yeah. is not cheap, especially when you're doing it right. It's a difference if I go and get, you know, seafood from the local store and then come and put it in my shop and say, hey, we're going to sell it. I can't do that, you know, because, again, that's my integrity on what right. I'm pushing out to my guests. And they get what they pay for. I think it's also about how people look at the food, too. What do they see? Does that look like it should be a price point of $20 or mm-hmm. does it look like you should get a tasting for, you know, <laughs> right. 70 bucks, you know? And it's like, no, the quality is there. It's it's truly what you see is what you get, you mm-hmm. know, and you're getting what you pay for. So, yeah. yeah. And I, you guys do an a la carte menu as well, though. Yeah. So you can mm-hmm. capture the, the one-off diner who doesn't want to do the full yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah. We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, support for State of Plate comes from the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective. Illuminating City Auditorium with diverse and accessible arts, education, and business events. Stay in the loop about all the exciting upcoming activities in this beautiful historic landmark by liking the Community Cultural Collective on Facebook or signing up for emails at communityculturalcollective.org. Now back to the conversation. I also want to talk a little bit more about ephemera because in my viewpoint, when I was thinking about guests to have on this show in terms of the new guard, the new wave, the new blood, you came to mind because I do think you and Adam, your co-chef proprietor, Adam Rydens, Mm -hmm. are really pushing the envelope more than most restaurants in town right now. I've seen your cookbook collection in your kitchen. It's the next level (laughs) stuff that I don't have the patience to read. I want to know how that's going over in the Springs. What do you see? Are people embracing this from that artistic approach you were talking about with Jasmine's influence? Yeah, I think it absolutely is being um, embraced quite a bit. Um, You know, fine dining in the Springs for a long time has been kind of reserved to Broadmoor and Broadmoor area spots, places where you go in and get a, a, you know, choose your protein. And then it comes with, with mashed potatoes and vegetables and, you know, and a fried piece of basil on top. But I think a younger crowd is, and, you know, even, even a generally older, older crowd with more money is, is really interested in actually having an interesting dining choice. I think chef brother did a really amazing thing by kind of sparking an interest in like creative fine dining with four of my brother, like specifically, um, or I think before that, well, before that, um, when he started doing his pop-ups at, uh, at the triple nickel yeah, and it, yeah. that's, that's when I first became familiar with him. Cause I was working for the, the same restaurant group, uh, that he was at when he was at the Craftwood. So he's doing little pop-up dinners there and, you know, they're just like very creative, these immersive experiences. Yeah, they're like glow of the dark. Yes. Yeah, or exactly. Alice yeah, in Wonderland so, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we got, I have, I have to admit we, we stole a lot of ideas from him. Well, he's going to be on the show later and he's going to have something to say about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I think he sparked an interest for a lot of people thinking that, you know, like, Hey, we can do weird, cool food and like actual dining experiences, like not just food. And, uh, you know, as, as we've been doing, we've, you know, we've had a lot of really great feedback from a lot of people saying like, oh, like if you were in Chicago, you'd be charging two, three times more for this kind of experience. And, and I, I, I don't purport to be anywhere near the level of a Michelin starred Chicago restaurant, but knowing that, you know, there are people that they know that and, uh, they're interested in coming to, to our place and they want to bring people back and, um, they're willing to spend the money that you have to spend to eat at our restaurant mm-hmm. well enough that we haven't gone out of business yet. So, right. uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's there's a huge interest for it. Build a plate for me. Like, give us a little visual here <laughs> of something you've done. Uh, man, the archives are suddenly um, overwhelming <laughs> me. <laughs> um, I mean, they're beautiful. Though. I mean, yeah. the plate is very well composed. The presentations are really important. There's a lot mm-hmm. of color. You're not doing like high level molecular gastronomy, but you'll do some touches, whether it's the yeah, little, little, you know, play, yeah. with, play with some some agar agar here and there, right? Know? Right. <laughs> so build, I don't know, build us a, a sample plate of something. I'm well, when we when we first opened, we had a pretty technically ambitious menu, um, and we also had some some really talented chefs who were way overqualified to be working under me, and uh, so we were able to we did this one that was really cool. Um, it was a uh, elk Wellington. So uh, an elk tenderloin wrapped with your um, you know, your, your mushrooms and and, uh, and a puff pastry, and then uh, we did a, a tarragon foam, uh, a little bit of like kind of a roasted squash and, and apple cider, and then a uh, miso caramel, which uh, nice. had a 
and a, a chef who once had some pedigree in town come in and eat there. And he's like, oh, I was doing miso caramel 10 years ago. But, you know, it was still it was like, it was cool for us. You know? Like, whatever, brother. Oh, sorry. Yeah. We didn't have to. Oh, it, wasn't him. <laughs> it wasn't him. Brother, right, brother's right. Way, way more polite than that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's jump topics real quick. I want to talk to Hannah and, and Chantal. Tell me about women in the kitchen. Tell us, you know, pre me too, post me too. My assumption is, of course, anything that Ian or I or anyone else has experienced in the restaurant industry as men has been harder for you. Is that accurate? Gosh, do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> I can already say uh, Hannah's got a way thicker skin than me. So, there, oh my goodness, uh, I think there's a lot of things that we could touch on. To quick fire a few things, I've been through situations where already being you know, hire in the guard at a restaurant, have to hire someone underneath me and train them and then find out that they make more than me. Wow. So that's been interesting in terms of treatment in the kitchen. I definitely think that, I mean, we're in a day and age where it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. So that's, I, I don't take that for granted. I think a lot of the kitchens that I've been in, you know, like boys will be boys. But a lot of the times that I've been in a kitchen, it becomes a tiptoe situation where they're like scared to make jokes. Mm -hmm. scared to be silly. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, we can loosen up a little bit. So I do think that on, on some ends, it's it's gotten way better. On some ends, it hasn't. I had um, probably the funniest one, just to lighten it up a little bit. I had a male chef that I was working with, and we got into a bit of an argument about cheese of all things. And I was saying, like, this is, like, you, it was about, like, you couldn't serve this cheese with the rind on it. And I was explaining why and stuff. And instead of responding to any of that, he said, you're even more beautiful when you're angry. <laughs> Nothing has ever infuriated me more than that. <laughs> so it's it's little comments like that that I don't think people necessarily come from a bad place when they say those things, but it sucks to be in that position. I mean, and, and I have a hundred more, but like we'll yeah. leave it at that for now. I think for me, um, I think the only thing I've heard since I've been here is I think the, oh, I've done it this way type deal has been, like, one of the biggest things. Um, I don't think anyone has ever came for me as a woman. Mm -hmm. um, being in the industry, I think I've gained a lot of respect from people, which is really awesome mm -hmm. um, to see. Because it, it is hard. You know, as a female, we, we're not dominated in the industry. Being in the military, um, in the dining facilities, it was all men. You would think, you know, women would sign up to be a cook or a chef, whatever. Because you were a culinary specialist I was a culinary well. specialist, right. yeah. And so it was a male-dominated arena. And so being in that arena in the military was different than it is for me now. It was a little scary because the guys were the ones who made the best meals. And um, at certain points, you know, a lot of the times the ladies, we would be in starches and vegetables and we were doing the sides and stuff. But you wouldn't find a lot of women doing the meats and the, you know, and that's weird. You know what I mean? To yeah. say that, like, I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, that is crazy. That That's what it was like. And I did three years and they would not let me touch meat. And I'm I like, that's, that's actually a really interesting point because I'm a product of the Broadmoor. I mm -hmm. went through my apprenticeship there and obviously they take you through the entire brigade of everything, like the entire first year is peeling potatoes and cheating bacon and that kind of stuff. But applying for my first chef position, the first thing I was asked is, so what do you know about pastry? And I was like, I'm not really a big fan of pastry, but mm -hmm. I have two years of classical butchery experience. It's just not something that people expect out of the gate. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's also the, the change in things that we've seen of, like, when you do become in charge as a woman, the respect that you get skyrockets because people don't expect it out of you. Hmm. So I do think that that's kind of a perk as well. We have powerful women chefs in town. There's oh, some yeah. amazing restaurants. So I every, think you have to For be. every, like, Jay or James or Brent I bring on, like, the white male older dude, <laughs> you've got the Muncie's. You've got the yeah. um, Maya over at Yushina. You've got mm. so many international female-run restaurants with just phenomenal foods. I look at um, Ambly and what Kelly and them are doing over there. Mm, yeah. I love, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just all praises because I'm like, this, this is it. Like, this is beautiful to see women kicking butt. I mean, going in. And the food is delicious. They bring a different sense of culinary to that side of town. It's beautiful, you know. So I, I'm very um, intrigued by a lot of the, the women here because, you know, there's so many of them that have come before me and before us. And so I pay homage to that because they have been sticking it out. I look at Ari, you know, over at Streetcar. Jeez, like that lady is phenomenal, you know, just what she does. Very strong woman and, and trying to run a business and some of the things that she goes through and things like that, things I've heard from us talking. It's really great to see that 
women can thrive and we don't have to feel like we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. And especially for myself, being an African-American woman, it's great to see people like you. It's great to see people that look like you. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's good. We need that um, because then it gives kids, you know, like, hey, wow, I can do that too. Or, you know, I was Mm -hmm. thinking about that or maybe I wasn't thinking about that, but Mm -hmm. now I can find a leader in this industry or leaders in the industry and say, you know, hey, well, let's take you over here and give you an experience of a lifetime or be that kid that, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. sat in the kitchen and watched mom yeah. or, you know, cook or whatever the case might be or watching other people do this, you know, phenomenal yeah. thing that we call culinary. I also think, I mean, just to kind of tie off of that, I mean, y- you mentioned the Me Too movement and I think post and during that movement, that that was huge to change a lot of the dialogue because, like, we can we can be strong, independent women all we want, but it does come up to other people to start those conversations as well. One thing that I wanted to mention, the, the coolest thing that ever happened when I was at four, and, and I still really admire brother for this, is someone in the dining room had asked to talk to the chef. So I went out, and they had a question about the dish, and I started to explain it, and the woman held her hand up and said, no, I want to talk to the chef. And I was like, "Wow, yeah, that's me. And she's like, no, where's the man in charge? <laughs> So I went in the kitchen, tail between my legs, and I was like, hey, a brother, I think she maybe wants to talk to you. And his response was to pull that woman back into the kitchen and make her apologize to me. Wow. So that was huge right. because she was immediately embarrassed. She was like, these are the things that we talk about as women that are not okay. And I just did it to another woman. She's like, I'm embarrassed. This is awful. But that was like, that was a huge step because like I could have said whatever I wanted and it wouldn't have made a difference. But brother stepped in and said something and it did make the difference. And I thought that that was huge. Mm-hmm. So, and Chantal, you brought up being a black owned business too. And I'm glad you did. There's an extra significance too of you being downtown. Cause I don't think we're well represented in the downtown corridor with black owned businesses. And historically we've got like Fannie Mae Duncan is a, a person in our town history who, you know, bridged that divide between the black and white communities and had the everyone welcome. And it was so significant businesses like yours, I think matter because they're doing that same thing now, probably bridging that same divide. I saw your truck at, at Ivy wild once and you have a following. I mean, there were so <laughs> many loyal fans, you know, everyone's in line for the crabalicious crab fries. It got my attention. I was like, wow, this is not the community I typically see here at, at Ivy wild. And this is awesome. I'm so glad to see that, that we have that bridge happening and kudos, congrats for being here <laughs> and doing that. We mentioned me too, but in 2020, we also had the, the big support BIPOC business movement yeah. that was sort of born out of the police brutality era. Did you notice a lot of support from that? Or did people come in saying, hey, I'm looking to support black owned businesses consciously found you online? Yes, we went. Oh, gosh, um, I think COVID that between COVID and the police brutality and all that, I think all that mashed up into one big like support ball. Um, hmm. And when I say literally, we were being contacted by so many magazines and journals and can we feature you guys? We heard you guys were black on business and we would like to talk to you and hear more about you and this and that. And I said, you know, it's sad that it takes this for that yeah. to be the reason why we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel that whatever opens the door opens the door. And I'm glad that it did open the door um, because I think people are, you know, at one point they were a little scared to talk about black owned businesses and mm-hmm. putting them out there on the forefront, unfortunately. But I think for us, it really did help raise the bar for African-American-owned businesses and um, shining a light that we are here and we are a part of this population. We are a part of culture. We are part like we want to do the same thing that any other business does. It's a shame that we have to separate it like that and we just mm-hmm. can't be businesses. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we have right. to put it in a category because no one pays attention to it or there are very few people that pay attention to it. And we are at the bottom of the totem pole. I guess that's why for me it's it's really passion um, more than monetary driven because at the end of the day, if I can reach 10 people, I've done well, you know, and it's not just reaching them through food, but it's reaching them through community outreach. It's reaching them through all these different things. We're trying to build the economy just like everybody else. We're trying to give jobs to people. We're trying to be role models for people. We want to do the same thing. And I think I want to show people that. And we can do different things. Just because I do Southern food doesn't mean that I can't do Italian food. Just because I do Italian food doesn't mean I can't do Latin food. I'm well-versed, you know, Um, and we show that through our back end of caterings. I think the community definitely uh, stood up. And when COVID happened, 
I always say, use the term, like, you know, they kept our screens green. Mm-hmm. They did. We had nobody coming inside of Kauai. Like, there was nobody coming. <laughs> like, nobody. And if you know Kauai, you know Kauai is the libations and the music and, you know, it's event-oriented. We had people that were waiting outside the door for curbside delivery. We had guys out there, cars lined up because they wanted to eat. And we were not expecting to have to run outside service and try to cook. And we went down to a minimal staff, you know, because mm-hmm. we had to. But they kept us open. And that is, tr- it was truly amazing um, to see that. But again, that goes back to not just being a Black-owned business, but being a business where the business model works. I don't like to just raise flags as, you know, hey, guys, look at me. I'm Black-owned. Like, no. I just want you guys to know that we are trying to set a standard. We are trying to do this. We're trying to do that. And we are a Black-owned business at the same time. We are Mm -hmm. a veteran-owned business at the same time. We are a woman-led business at the same time. We are a family-owned business at the same time. So we have all these attributes to us, you know what I mean, Um, that make us just as important as any other, you know, restaurant or someone who's put in time. I've put in time just like everybody else. And I think sometimes when you look at black owned, you don't think time, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, right. people did again, we're, we're at the, at the bottom, unfortunately, but I want you to see, I work hard to ensure that my guys are taken care of. I work hard to build um, um, a culture of, of, Hey, you know, this is a family oriented space. We're, we're trying to change that mentality of what used to be, kitchen culture. We're trying to change the mentality of uh, substance abuse. We're trying to change the mentality of, you know, you're working 16 hours and the man is just telling you, be here, be here, be here, be. No, it's it's, it's different, you know. So whatever I can do to, to get people to see that, which I think we're doing the best that we can right now and trying to do more. Again, it makes me proud to see people being receptive to it because it is scary being a black owned business in a majority Caucasian, you know, uh, state. Honestly, we are, I think we only make up 5% of Mm. Colorado African-Americans do. And so to be one of the black owned businesses to stand out in a majority Caucasian area is Crazy. Significant. It is very significant. And it's a blessing as well. So I thank everybody for that. It's really cool to see. Uh, I really like what you said, too, about just changing the culture and then that conscious effort to – to do it differently. Hannah and Ian, do you see the same thing with the with the new guard compared to the old guard? Is there more effort now to change those old uh, kitchen Absolutely. Habits. You mean in terms of like like kitchen culture? Kitchen culture, but I mean you could touch on kitchen culture, but also like we mentioned me too. I mean I when I was in restaurants when I was a teenager, I didn't know any better. I was just coming up in it, but I saw all the towel popping on the asses yeah. and like <laughs> rude comments and like the usual misogynist comments in the kitchen, but it was just what I encountered it. And literally, I was like 16. I did not know yeah. any better until I knew better. And then I was like, holy shit. My, I, mean, I saw that. Like, I was terrible. Like, I, I, I was embarrassed for how I came up yeah. in it. But again, you have the classic, like, angry yelling chef. And you have, you're like, kitchens are abusive places, usually. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be that way. Is the new guard figuring that out and doing it better? I definitely think so. Yeah. Like I mentioned, kind of coming up in the Broadmoor. I mean, obviously, that's a lot more old school than most places in this town and than most places, like, I mean, really, anywhere nowadays, it's still got, like, the classical guard and everything. You still do have, I mean, like, and, and not to shit on or anything, I loved my time at the Broadmoor, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. But it definitely, it's it's an intense environment. And, I mean, you see a lot of the old school stuff of, like, we did work 80, 90-hour weeks, and however many hours I got paid for that is besides the point. But, you know, there were chefs that threw things at your head. There were chefs that belittled and screamed at you and said things that had nothing to do with your cooking ability just to tear you down. And, you know, I feel like you see a lot of people who are like, well, cooks these days, they don't have any thick skin. Why should I have to? Mm -hmm. I think you can relate to this because I feel like we manage people pretty similarly about like yelling at someone doesn't make things go any faster or get done any better it crumbles people. Yeah. And, you know, when you have something like, yeah, I shouldn't have to work the hours of a doctor and still wonder what I'm going to eat tonight. Mm. Yeah. I shouldn't not be able to make mm. my rent, you know, that kind of yeah. stuff. Like, I, I, yeah. if that culture is going to die, let it let it die. Let it yeah, burn to the ground absolutely. and we can start over. I don't think it's something we need to complain about, about people not being as tough as they used to or not wanting to work as hard as mm-hmm. they used to. We shouldn't have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I, I think that should always be the whole point. You know, th- everything should be easier for the next generation because you worked hard to make it easier for the next generation and so forth. But yeah, I think even chefs that would be kind of considered old school are really recognizing that 
you know the the old abusive Gordon Ramsay and and Marco Pierre White Kitchen is I mean it's it's archaic. And... I mean Eric Repair is a Buddhist now, so like <laughs> like that's a perfect example of like you look at someone who was know notoriously <laughs> yeah an angry old school chef, and yeah. he's like this isn't getting anything accomplished. Yeah, I don't mean this to be a digression, but where do you think that even ever originated from? Because cooking was a disrespectful job to have. It wasn't something yeah. that was like looked upon classes, as like. Yeah. I mean, even th- we're probably the generation where that most notably changed. But I mean, even when I started cooking, I had people ask me when I was going to get a real job. Mm-hmm. I had people ask me if I was just doing this to pay for college. I'm like, no, I want to do this. But like, we're the first generation that has like the rock star attached to it about like people are excited about Food Network. People are excited about like Mm -hmm. Top Chef and like a chef is a cool job now. And unfortunately, the effects of the job are following after that. Like people think it's a cool job. And don't realize, like, all of us work for a pack of cigarettes and a stick of gum at the end of the day. <laughs> like, it's it's not a good paying job. It is a pretty brutal job in terms of hours and conditions and all that. Mm-hmm. But the public perception now has turned so positive and the effects of the job are slowly following that. But it is happening because we're not, you know, as much as we're called back of house, we're not necessarily invisible anymore. People mm-hmm. want to know what we're doing. People want to see us and we want to be seen. Everyone's had to bring wages up because of the labor problem. And suddenly line cooks were starting at killer pay compared to what it used to be now still not great it's still not what the job is worth Mm -hmm. for those of us who've done it before and know it's worth more but the the pay was actually pretty good for the first time in a while Mm. do you think that's going to hold up um can it hold up in the model i really hope so and i mean it was it was kind of kind of funny uh you know when covid hit uh and i don't mean to to reinforce anyone's idea of uh you know payouts keeping people from working but all of a sudden a lot of line cooks were receiving unemployment and extra supplements on that. And like, oh my God, I've never made this much money in my life. For not working. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's like, I've been working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week, busting my ass, getting screamed at, having shit thrown at me. And now all of a sudden I'm making more money than I've ever made. And I get to like spend time with my, with my girlfriend or whatever, you know, and. Um, or to fall back in love with cooking again. I mean, yeah, yeah, cooking like, professionally ruined food for a lot of us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, regularly does for me (laughs) (laughs) you know i I do think that's a good point is that like you know i mean i'm sure all three of us as business owners know that like margins are Mm -hmm. little itty bitty when it comes to a restaurant (laughs) because people's perception of what they should pay for food is basically the baseline cost of food for one so that makes it difficult but at the same time like yeah when the pandemic hit I mean, it was more money than I'd ever made. Yeah, absolutely. It was, which is a really miserable realization. Oh, right. And then you look at things like, I mean, I don't, I don't know your guys' story behind that, but um, when the pandemic hit, I applied to 97 different jobs during Jesus. unemployment, and I didn't get a single call back. Yeah. And I was looking at things like job descriptions, and a cashier at Whole Foods was asking for a bachelor's degree. Wow. <laughs> I was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> but you look at things like the wealth of experience we have as chefs. Mm-hmm. Like I have six years of admin work. I have two years of business administration. I have two and a half years of business ownership. Like the qualifications that I have don't necessarily match with anything that someone's looking for because they don't have a slip of paper. Mm-hmm. And working in kitchens, people know that. They're like, oh, well, you don't have a degree. We don't have to pay you as much. Yeah. But, you know, we end up in other jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, like yeah. um, there's a couple people that have like normal nine to fives now. And it's really exciting because, like, they can afford rent for the first time. They're not borrowing money. They're able to eat out at places that normally they would have just cooked people at. can afford rent in Colorado Springs. <laughs> Wild, isn't it? Wild, right? Yeah. <laughs> Chantal, you no, have something to like, say, it, too. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I think they're hitting the spot on. I think uh, the, the culture for that is changing in some ways. I think the old model was, yes, we we pay you to work 16 hours and you only get that cigarette and a beer at the end of your shift, yeah. you know. Um, I think now, especially for me, it's talent. I'm looking for talent. But I know a lot of people, they were scrambling to find people and I don't want to just look for bodies. I want to look for talent. I want people that really want to be in this industry, that want to do this and, and make something happen. Mm-hmm. We have a standard of what we want. We have a standard of experience that we would like. We have a standard of if you don't have experience, you just at least be trainable, you know, and again, be enthusiastic about mm-hmm. where you are. I don't just want somebody that came from a previous restaurant because they were used to that culture Mm -hmm. and they just want to come here and make tips. We've had people do that. We get (laughs) resumes and, you know, things go through these conversations, have the interview and we're like, you know, what what, would make you want to work here and things like that? Ask those questions. Oh, I just need a job for tips. And I'm like. I understand that. I totally get it. Everybody needs money. We it, it makes the world turn. You know, you got to survive. 
but I also need you to have a little bit more because then if you don't, that changes my service, that changes the plate, that changes mm-hmm. the way you season food, that changes all of that. And then now my company dies because of your lack of enthusiasm. So I'm willing to pay you what you are worth, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I need that talent to come with it. So I think it's curving the mindset. I get guys that come from other restaurants now and they're like, you know, I want to bring my my guy here because you guys are totally different than what we're used to and Mm -hmm. what we're accustomed to. And we like this culture here. We want to thrive with you guys. Mm -hmm. And that is awesome because mental health is real. All these things are real. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. substance abuse is real. Like, we have to get out of the mindset of, hey, these are just bodies. And you tell them what to do and they do it and they robot it. These mm-hmm. are human beings, bro. Right. Like, you got a real, like, you're a human being. I don't even want to work 30 and 20 hours a week. So I understand you not wanting to work 16 hours in a day. Like, I don't expect you to be a, a horse. Like, you, yeah. you can't. Well, I've found it to be, like, just so important. Cause I've had the opportunity to be inspired by people in my career and, you know, like, wanting to wanting to come in because I had a good leader and then eventually – compensating people properly and making them really feel you know, appreciated. That's what we, you know, we, we show up to work because we need money. And so with, with like kind of restructuring a bit of tipping culture and then uh, the way we design Ephemera's Kitchen and the way all the, the pods and, and Kaladi and everything work, I mean, having this visibility of the people who are cooking for like everybody can see everybody who's cooking the food. So having a bit of visibility in that. So like putting a face to the guest for the, for the cook and then if, you know, and vice versa. Just having that humanization um, is huge, and then uh, you know, re- again, uh, restructuring tipping to you know pooling with everybody. Like my servers still make th- the same money they'd be making in any any fine dining restaurant, mm-hmm. but then my cooks are making you know twenty two, twenty three dollars an hour, and like Which I take is so huge. Yeah, yeah, that's I, I mean that's three times more than I've ever made as a line <laughs> cook. Um, I take so much pride in knowing that, you know, my cooks get, you know, they get two cigarettes and a beer. Um, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> um, I think, so Jay and the other Club Nine guys um, mentioned staging culture is dying. You know, mm-hmm. people don't want to work for free anymore. Yeah. People might have passion but don't want to work or will work but don't have the passion. And I do think that, like, that what we we're just talking about, about the culture and that kind of go hand in hand. I love staging in restaurants, but I have seen a metamorphosis of, like, you know, um, of all the chefs I've worked for, I've had like I've had three or four really good mentors. One of them, I went and staged up at Fruition in Denver with Franco Ruiz at the time, and I was there for you know four days. And during that time, I mean, he was by my side, showing me things, introducing me to the kitchen. Everyone in the kitchen was really willing to teach. That's not something you see a whole lot of anymore. And then I have friends who have staged in Michelin style restaurants, and they're like, "Yeah, it's cool to say I did it, but like I picked parsley for thirteen hours." <laughs> And then got yelled at because I moved a trash can too loud. Like, that's not being involved in something. That's not getting creative or being passionate about something. And, like, I'm happy to work for free because at the end of the day, like, it is a work of passion. But, like, I do still need to make my rent. Like, it is about the money. Mm -hmm. The staging thing is serious. Like, I think we we had somebody that came in and uh, we (laughs) I tried to do that. And I was like, yeah, you can come in and stage. And they were like, yeah, so I'm going to get paid for this. And I'm like. No, like, no. <laughs> so this is more like kind of like, like premature. Like, yeah. but then I realized I said with well, the culture, people they some of these guys don't understand. Like, they don't get that. And then there's some guys that do get that because that's where they come from. But it's still more like I can't just stash for a week and no, not get some no, type of compensation. Yeah. No, that was like a one one shift, like three hours. Come and see if you like our kitchen yeah. and yeah. see if we like you. you yeah, know? But yeah, like. When I've staged at restaurants, it was literally like I took vacation time or I did it in mm-hmm. between jobs. Like, that's not something people can just afford right. to do. Right. That's something I saved up money to do an experience mm-hmm. that I was looking forward to. We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, I'd like to thank these underwriters for making this podcast possible. Downtown Colorado Springs, home of the largest concentration of independent restaurants in Southern Colorado, is proud to sponsor State of Plate and support the passionate individuals who make the food and beverage industry a cultural highlight in our lives. And the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Good beer requires good water, and lots of it. That's why the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance brings together water resource experts and brewing industry professionals to spark conversations about protecting our watershed. Visit fountain-crk.org to find a liquid lecture at your favorite local brewery. Now, back to the conversation. 
as we talk about these things that have culturally shifted for the better, mm-hmm. do you think it can 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 it last? Will will we keep embracing it, or will we keep sliding back downhill? And to some degree, will kitchens always be abusive and always have the mental health and substance abuse problems and always revert back to that old way of being? Like, can your generation push us to the place where that goes away forever? I think it's a teetering scale for a lot of different things at the same time that, like, you know, restaurants don't make a lot of money. We have way too much shit to do in this amount of time. We work way too many hours in the day. Like, when I'm running a restaurant, like, the last fucking thing I want to do is show someone how to peel a carrot or cut an onion. But those are important things to do, and that's how you get the talent. Mm-hmm. We live in Colorado Springs, and as much as it's grown, like, we're still not a huge town. We're not sprouting golden line cooks out of the ground. Like, you have to build those people, yeah, and we have to attract those people, and you have to prove to people that you are a culture worth working for instead of hoping that those people come and make that for you. So it sounds like for us to grow as a food scene, we've got to lay more foundation. And you also see the effects of like, I'm really glad that we're growing, but like, I think the expansion that we're having might be a little aggressive because you see all these restaurants popping up left and right. But we have like 12 people who can cook that food in this town and everyone's fighting for them. Mm -hmm. And then we have the food truck culture is huge. I remember when there was like, 10, uh, you know, a few years back, not too long mm-hmm. ago. And then a couple of years ago, I talked to someone, we counted like now we're like 100, 150. I mean, it's, it's, Which is so, it's cool. so many now I mean, they're, they're everywhere. And then every other day, there's another one opening. A lot of people who think like, I can make a grilled cheese. I'm going to start a truck. And if you are going to do grilled cheese, just make it delicious and make it amazing. Uh, make it something I can't cook at home yeah. somehow. Is the food truck culture putting at risk the, the leap forward also because too many I'll say the word mediocre just to be mean. Mediocre things are, are happening in the food truck scene, although there are some great ones and some really good ones. But So I I like what you said about the um, hop on the scene and, you know, hey, I know I can make a really good baked chicken, so we're going to sell baked chicken. That is the part where I go back to your model. You want to do a food truck model, do it. But... I think it really takes more effort than me just putting something in like a microwave and just, you know, zapping it and then just giving it to you. Um, I think we should change our mindsets about how we look at food trucks. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of innovation going on in the food truck world, and we're talking state to state to state. I think having something where it's substance and it's sustainable and it's not the average like, oh, I know I can just go get this burger but I can make this burger at home, but I'm going to pay you $10 for this burger. Mm. People are looking at that. 10 is a great deal. I'm thinking 15. <laughs> well, 15. Yeah. Well, 15, 15, especially with beef costs. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, people are looking at that. And I think it really sets the tone for who you are as an established company. Are you just trying to come out and get money? Or are you trying to do something for this industry? And you don't always have to be like, I'm not telling you to go be Superman or Superwoman or anything like that. I just think it needs to have some type of substance. And I think that was my mindset going into it was that I didn't want to be just a food truck. I don't want you to just look at me as, okay, yeah, we'll just come and get you for this, you know, party and you sell these, you know, burgers and tater tots or whatever. Like I want it to push more. So I think it's about the individual when they come out and they say, okay, I want to do this. Well, what do you want to do? You want to do grilled cheese? Why are you going to do gourmet grilled cheese? What are we doing to change the mindset? And I think that helps bring a different culture to the area because, you know, with the food trucks, they're mobile. So it's easier for them to get around. We can zap around anywhere, all over. We can get spread the word quickly. And I think that's awesome. But I think it's also about how you do it and, and what you're bringing to that scene that changes the mindsets of people. Because I know in California, back home, Los Angeles, food truck scene is wild. It's been wild mm. for years. It's gotten bigger, way bigger. Mm. Like you said, Colorado Springs, I think at one point there was really wasn't a lot of food trucks around. And now the, the scene has blown up with food trucks. We can't just go pick models and say, well, I'm going to do what this person does. and I'm going to open up the same type of truck, do the same type of food and do like, no, I think it has to be unique and it has to be eccentric. It has to be something different. It has to be something where you say, like I tell my chefs, like, I don't want them to say that they can cook this at home. I want them to try to figure out what this is yeah. and why you can bring this flavor and I can't. So, yeah, I love no. that you said that, too, because it's something I, I was thinking about. Like, it does need to be unique and it does need to be different. And too many people are opening the same thing. Mm. More barbecue, more burgers, more tacos. And it's like why, when you're starting your business, why don't you look around and think, what don't we have? Of all mm-hmm. those international exactly. cuisines out there that we still don't have in town, yeah. I'd be happy if someone brought some amazing food that we just don't have 
just to bring it so we don't get yet another burger place. We don't need any more mm. burger places. We're fine on burgers right now. <laughs> so. It's like, I think the last two episodes, someone's mentioned Chiba Bar. Chiba Bar's killing it. Oh, yeah. I yeah. love that place. Oh, and that's a yeah. really good example of like, it's not another taco pizza burger, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, that's something different. And mm-hmm. it's doing it great. Oh, I, I, anytime somebody asks me, like, what's the best bar in town? I always say Chiba and Archives. Um, yeah. And like, Chiba is such a fucking awesome concept for the Springs because a talented chef running a, a small kitchen with a small menu, but it's all really good food. Yeah. And you can get it at one in the morning. Yeah. Right. Uh, and for but industry, like said, and it's like a huge industry spot. Right. Yeah. Well, that's like, what Mike yeah. brought. Like, he brought an Izakaya model. We didn't have that. And a lot of people, if they haven't been to Japan or traveled there, mm-hmm. and they don't n- know the difference between an Izakaya and a, a a basic sushi joint yeah. or a noodle bar. This is, I mean, there's so many different sub-variants mm. of just Japanese food at large, but mm-hmm. they're doing it just right, and everyone's responded to that. What do you think it would take for us to get more of that? I, I mean, mean people, from other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, people taking the example. Yeah, but. I was just going to say, um, uh, last episode, they mentioned a lot about like the fast food kind of phases that we've gone through. I do think that fast food is kind of the first step to that kind of metamorphosis of like, they need to lay the groundwork. Like, yeah, a lot of fast food places are going to die out as people like different shit. But you know, like if it's getting people out of their houses to go wait in line for in and out for three hours, that's someone who's excited about food, be it garbage or not. You get someone who's going to do that a year from now, they're going to be like, I'll go wait in line for three hours for good barbecue, for good mm-hmm. seafood, for good sushi, for whatever. It, it starts that spark of people being interested in food. And it also gets different areas of town built up to where could, we can put things there. So I do think like like fast food is an important part of this. And I do think a lot of people shit on it. It's but, an like, important that's, part of my yeah. diet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's an important part of all of our yeah, diets at this point. You ask the, any line yeah. cook, what are we eating at 2 o'clock yeah, in the morning? It's probably, it's, probably McDonald's. I think no. everyone's grievance or my own is just it's like the clone stamp. And, like, you can go to any town and it's always the same. And so there's the Chipotle here and the Applebee's there. And, and it kills the creativity. Like, the creative heart and the passion of a chef chef is like, oh, God, you're just you're, you're hurting me talking mm. about mm. you went to Applebee's. You went to Chili's. You could have come here. And the, the end of the night check is not that much cheaper at an Applebee's or, or mm. wherever if you have some drinks and you do all the courses. I spent like, like $30 at Taco Bell and I didn't even get that much food. That's what hurts us. It was like you could you could have spent that with a local mom and pop. Yeah. And that could have stayed, those dollars could have stayed more in the community. And you could have had a unique experience that's not available in, mm. you know, 75 other cities. So I don't know. The, the lament there for me sometimes is just independent versus chain. We can simplify it to that. 100%. I think the outreach, like I said before, is like the biggest part because, again, it's getting people to get to know these places because Colorado Springs doesn't have like a crazy presence of star chefs or <laughs> people that are, you know, coming out to come see so-and-so and things like that. We don't have that wicked presence as if you were to go to Louisiana, people know where to go in Louisiana. If you were to go to Maryland, Maine, people know where to kind of go there because they have a really wicked food scene that mm-hmm. people are interested in. Um, and just like she was saying about the in and out deal, again, it's a simplistic situation, but people are interested in it, it's consistent, and they like it. And so what can we do in our industry on the more small business thinking big business, because we can't keep thinking small business, we need to start thinking big business, because no small business wants to stay small, I really hope they don't. Mm -hmm. That's the model that you start with. But we want to think on a bigger level as well. For me, I want to think on a level of I don't want to be a corporation that goes outward so much to where I can't reach the people like I'm reaching Mm -hmm. them now. So I think we can change that by doing the same thing that they're doing. But we're doing it better and we're giving more of an experience or we're giving people that same feeling that they get when they get those animal style French fries or whatever the case might <laughs> yeah, be. You yeah. know what I mean? Because anybody, you name something from in and out people can pinpoint all kind of stuff, even the secret menu. You know what I mean? Because it's something that's important to them. And mm-hmm. so you have to make your food important to people. And I feel yeah. like once we do that, I think the stance on what food culture is, I think that would change for us dramatically. Colorado in general is in kind of a, a unique position where like, we don't really have like a regional specificity to our food. Right. We don't have Maine lobster and chowder. We right. don't have Maryland crab and, and so forth. We have green chili, I guess. But I mean, there's like three places that make a good green chili in the springs. Nice. That's a bit of an opportunity for us to, yeah, to incorporate all these, these, these different ideas. And especially being a military town, we have people who have gone all over the world and people who come from all over the world, for example, Anju, uh, you know, you know, Dre lived in, in Korea for a while and, and was inspired to have a Korean spot. 
And Anju is another place in Kuwati for mm-hmm. listeners yes. who don't know. And then that's coming from Andreas, who did Pig Latin. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. started as a food truck, went to brick and mortar up on Academy, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. opened Anju in Kuwati. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think I think that we are in a unique position to be able to have that kind of uh, diverse exploration, and it, and it takes that passion that you're talking about to like do it right. Yeah. I think playing off one thing that you said, one thing that you said, um, you, you can only play off one person at a time. Yeah, <laughs> too bad I'm doing it, multitasking over here. <laughs> um, the the Colorado Springs Foodies group on Facebook, yeah, I think is super cool. And like going back to the In and Out thing, when In and Out opened, there are people who knew about In and Out. And everyone's posting on it. And, like, a ton of people started posting in the Color Springs Foodies page about, like, here's places you can support instead of that. A lot of those people didn't know that Drifters existed or that Green Line existed. Yeah. And that's how people found out about it. Mm-hmm. I think as chefs and as industry people in general, we definitely speak from a different perspective. I've only ever worked in restaurants. I've only ever done food. I have a different perspective on the importance that food takes in my life and the priority that it has than your average Joe Schmo. And that doesn't mean that they don't like food. It just means like we have a very different worldview of how food should happen yeah. than someone just looking for a meal. And so like I do think the way that we view how people should see food is definitely different than the reality of it. Mm. I'm glad you brought up drifters too, because in my mind they prove a model that that knocks out everyone else's excuses. They're using yeah. ranch foods direct beef, which means it can be done mm-hmm. at a reasonable price point yeah. where you can still serve a fast food style burger that's better than yeah. for a reasonable, mm-hmm. affordable price. So it's like if drifters can do it, everyone should, in theory, be able to do it. Yeah. They're making their margin somehow and they're successful. Mm-hmm. I've seen a model, it, it exists. Mm-hmm. I also just want to posit a theory listening to you, to you talk, but like this new wave, this new guard, if you guys want to make this happen, I feel like it's it's active resistance in a way. It, it becomes political, but like mm. I like nothing I, more political than food, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I was just thinking though, like it's the businesses like Skirted Heifer who opened up at Dublin and Powers. Now yeah. that's a local again. They're using I think grass fed beef to my knowledge still. Another local burger that goes into the pocket of what we're complaining about mm-hmm. this up you know north and east and all chains. And they open their local burger version, and they're going to introduce that whole yeah, demographic exactly. to hey, this is what we're doing. And maybe it's if you do a second location down the road, if you want to grow, maybe it's going into those places, too, and saying, OK, we're going to do the same thing. And if it's not them, if it's not the one with one location, um, I'm, I'm even OK with, like, the bird call coming in to challenge Chick-fil-A up there. Mm-hmm. It's a Denver restaurant group. They've got a bunch of restaurants. But compared to the Chipotle's or the whatever, they're yeah. still a smaller regional restaurant group, kind of mm-hmm. like even Fruition. Alex Seidel, he has yeah. multiple restaurants. So it's well, still a company. Like Chuck is starting with the whole charcoal chicken thing. Like, that's a simple concept. But like yeah. it's still something that's like... Like, that's good for Yeah, them. I mean, we, we've got that next tier down, which is like the gourmet regional restaurant groups, yeah. which I'd still want to support them over a big chain, then down to like the mom and pop one-off. But um, anyway, I love seeing like the Bird Call Challenge Chick-fil-A right across the street, you know, yeah. at that level. I love seeing <laughs> yeah. Skirted Heifer go up there near, I'm sure there's a McDonald's or a Burger King or something near there. Um, <laughs> we need more of the resistance, right? Is that part mm-hmm. of it? Yeah, definitely. definitely. So is there anything else we have not talked about today anyone wants to bring up or we feel like we didn't cover about the future of food in Colorado Springs? I think there's a lot, but (laughs) (laughs) nothing we could wrap up in in a few minutes. I know we touched on the fact that I'm a private chef, but seeing that kind of shift in people's mindsets of a lot of things, private dining has gotten a lot more popular in the last few years. And just kind of seeing that shift in mindset of, um, you know, people's people's ideas about what a private chef is, is definitely changing. And that's really neat to see. Um, and like the availability to food that it gives people, the accessibility, and also uh, as a chef, the opportunity to take my ego out of it <laughs> has <laughs> definitely been huge. Because as a private chef, I mean, a lot of the times you have to cook people the food that they need instead of the food that you want to cook. So it's it's been an interesting thing, but I definitely think that that's going to be a huge trend in the next few years is seeing a lot more of that. And how do people find you if they want to talk to you more about that? I have a website and an Instagram. My Instagram is just at Chef Couples, which is C-U-P-P-L-E-S, not right. C-O. And then my website is just for chef's sake. Okay. Two S's. All right. <laughs> Oh, well, um, for me, you can contact me at Um You can see all the good stuff that we're doing in the community and um, our calendar of events. You can book us for um, caterings and private dinners and things like that. And Ian, do you have anything coming up uh, specific at Ephemera in addition to the regular tasting menus, any kind of thematic event or something? Or? We're trying to do kind of relatively monthly wine dinners coming up. 
But this one we're doing now is uh, with uh, our good friend and uh, Colorado Springs native, Jared Boyer. Jared who's... Boyer from episode one is going to come yes. to the wine dinner with you? Wow, okay. Yeah, I think this so... is unfortunately going to air after that, so people are going to have <laughs> yeah. to get a time machine and yeah. go back. But right, right. Um, <laughs> he's, he's my favorite friend to brag about. Well, thanks, everyone, for coming in for our third episode. Again, Hannah Couples, Ian Diedrichsen, and Chantal Lucas. On the next episode... It's not real. These TV shows are there to use you. They're there to make money off of you, to be the entertainment. I think the city is going to have a culinary awakening. I think it's long overdue. It's a lot harder to educate the community about how the food should be in our minds and a lot easier for us to accept, just like they're saying. We're cooking for them. We're not cooking for us. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Please tell your friends about this podcast. We'd love your feedback, especially if you have a different perspective on anything we've said. You can comment on my social media pages, as well as the CS Indies. Find links in our show notes or search us by name. State of Plate was written and co-produced by me, Matthew Schnipper, in partnership with the Colorado Springs Indie and Dave Gardner, who also did our editing. Art design by Elena Trapp. Digital support by Sean Cassidy. Cheers to Hug Speaks Lauren Hug, as well as Shane Lyons for consulting on the show. And special thanks to publisher and executive editor of the Colorado Springs Indie, Amy Gillentine, for greenlighting this podcast. 